Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Most of you listening likely already know that we are thick into our Back to Basics for Brain Health series. We have covered fitness and brain health, nutrition and brain health, sleep and brain health, mindfulness and the mind-body connection and brain health, and today we are diving into the digital era's great controversy, screens and brain health. Walking through this series, I felt pretty good about the other topics, like they're clear and necessary, and generally I think we want to make changes to improve these parts of our lives because we know that we'll benefit from it. This topic, however, screens, I feel a little differently about. You see, I like my screens, and I don't really want to be told that they aren't great for me. But I also know that they have a very real impact on wellness, and I don't think I would be doing the fullness of my job if I didn't cover this, even if it's inconvenient to my own personal preferences. I guess we're all going to be challenged in this one together. Now, I did reach out to several experts on the topic of digital health and healthy relationships with screens and tech, but unfortunately, everyone I connected with was busy and not able to commit to recording with me. So today, you just get me and the research. I'm grateful that many of the people I reached out to who work in this space offered me some resources to help me pull this episode together and pass along their wisdom and learning vicariously. In our other episodes from this series, I asked all of our guests similar questions around common challenges they see for first responders and frontline workers, impacts related to the brain, and ways to work at making some gains and reclaiming our brain health. So for today's episode, we're going to follow a similar format. So let's start with talking about the common challenges that come up around digital health for first responders and frontline workers. Some of the most common ones I hear in my office include feeling tired and finding social media scrolling, video games, or TV to be easy, passive ways of feeling like they're doing something without actually having to do much of anything. Another concern is that engaging with screens becomes addictive. We seek the stimulation, the noise, the comfort of the busyness around us. There's a significant reward to scrolling and stumbling on that hilarious cat video, or hearing an alert that lets us know that someone has liked something we've posted, or just watching one more episode of whatever the latest show is. Another challenge is that so much of what we once did is now on our devices. My husband criticized me a while back for being on my phone a lot while the kids were in the room, 
And at first I agreed that it was likely more than I wanted to model. But I also realized that when I was a kid, my parents ignored us for lengths of time to read the newspaper, call their families, read a book, read the mail, and so on. And now all of that is on my devices. So no wonder we're spending so much time in front of screens. It's also true that screens are just a very significant and unavoidable part of our day. Interacting with screens and technology has become a central aspect of many workplaces, schools, and other public venues. It's also a part of our home lives as we help kids navigate homework or seek to connect with friends for a game or online chat. It's so embedded in our tasks and needed actions that even if we restricted use for pleasure, we would still find ourselves spending a lot of time in front of a screen. Recognizing that there are some tripwires that get us hung up in a ton of screen time, let's talk about the impacts. The research has largely focused on the impacts for kids, and I think a lot of parents feel concerned about their kids' screen time and work to manage that as well as they can, given whatever factors are at play for their family. For adults, the difficulty is we don't have our own adult to censor and help us manage our behavior. We have to self-impose restrictions or guidelines that serve us well as people in relationship with tech. And that's tricky because one thing that most people struggle with is some version of self-control. The thing about self-control is that it's not fun. The reward isn't obvious or direct. It isn't as rewarding as finding that hilarious goat yoga meme that makes you giggle every time you think about it. So doing self-control feels like it means depriving ourselves of something rewarding for some long-term benefit we don't feel a clear sense of achieving that feels too far into the future to really hang our hats on. Which is why, even when we try really hard to reduce screens or regulate other parts of our lives, we'll tend to inevitably fall back into old patterns. We talked about this concept a bit with Zam in the episode on fitness and brain health. We talked about how the long-term reward of fitness is worth it, but feels hard to wade through the uncomfortable parts early on where there are fewer short-term rewards to keep us motivated. He talked about the intangible rewards and anchoring to these. And we also talked a lot about having to really anchor to why it matters. We're gonna have to take a similar approach when it comes to talking about screens, self-control, and working to sidestep the tendency to fall back into old patterns. Before we start talking about how we're gonna shift and shape our relationship with our devices, let's first acknowledge some of the significant impacts our existing relationships with tech have on our brain and our wellness. I want us to feel grounded in the why for wanting to take a step back from our coveted devices. And trust me, I am talking to myself as much as I am to the rest of you. Let's start with this one. The advent of tech, the way we experience it today, has meant that we never get to turn off. The whole entire world is literally constantly at our fingertips. Yes, that means cat memes, but it also means that email from your boss and news about bombings in Syria and text messages from your mom guilting you for missing Thanksgiving and, and, and. It's never ending and it can become inescapable. It gives people who used to have more concrete boundaries in place, like your boss or coworkers, a level of access that they likely shouldn't have. And it can feel suffocating. 
This has meaning for our poor brains that are holding way more than they were ever meant to and not granting our brains a break from stimulation, expectation, demands, and information overload. There's some indication that this degree of connectivity is related with increasing anxiety rates. I was actually talking to my grandma about this a while ago. She's 83 and was sharing about how much stress it's been during COVID and the heat wave here in BC during the summer and other significant world events that she's seeing played out from her tablet. Because yes, my gram is cool like that. I asked her about her memory of feeling stress during wartime. Her dad was a soldier and she remembers him coming home from war. She shared that while wartime had its own stress, it was a different time. News only came occasionally and was so delayed from real-time action. Mail was slow, phones weren't in every home, and the access to information was really limited. Even things like pictures were mostly in black and white, there wasn't a lot of video, the exposure was different. She shared about how this meant that you could really just keep living your life, in many ways quite sheltered from what was happening out in the big wide world. You left school and went home. These parts of your life felt separate because they were. Same with work. Unless you farmed, you left work and went home and your work life was distinct from your home life. One ended and the other began. It was simpler, clearer, and not so inundating. She shared that as a teacher, she had always loved information and sought it out, but now finds having to be careful about how much she lets in and when, because it feels heavy and relentless and has a deep impact. She shared that hearing news from across the world on a scratchy radio was very different than watching video of serious world events in real time, and it elicits a more connected personal reaction, which is good and humanizing of events a world away, but not without a cost to those who feel weighed down and sometimes haunted by the visual confrontation of what happens out there. I can appreciate that the access to be connected to feels meaningful for us, but the reality of what it means to be on all the time has real consequences in terms of our wellness. For example, one study found that adults exposed to more than six hours a day of screens, including TV and computers, were significantly more likely to suffer from depression. One of the pieces cited in studies linking devices to mental health concerns like depression is not just to do with the information overload, but also to do with the sedentary nature of engaging in device use. We are finding ourselves to be an increasingly sedentary culture. I hear from a lot of first responders and frontline workers this echo of, I was run off my feet my whole set. When I'm on my days off, I don't want to move. And I get it. Although I likely have the opposite problem as someone who's literally paid to sit all day. But this circles us back to that interview with Zam a few weeks ago. Movement is one of the pieces that benefits our brain and our bodies in such meaningful ways. And the problem with devices is that they tend to really trip us up from getting the movement we need. They keep us engaged but stuck all at the same time. And that can be a contributing factor to mental health declines into depression. Also, we have to call out the impact of screens on sleep. And we've already talked about sleep's impact on your brain. We touched on this one a bit in our episode two weeks ago with Dr. Glenn Landry. 
The problem with screens and sleep is primarily twofold. First, the blue light wave emitted by screens and other lights mess with our brain's ability to produce melatonin at the right time when it's time to feel sleepy. This can make it harder for your brain to fall asleep and can mess with your sleep cycle, which then has negative consequences for your ability to feel regulated and capable when it's time to wake up and face another day, especially when this adds up on an ongoing. Aside from the blue light issue, we also face the challenge of revenge bedtime procrastination, which we also touched on with Glenn in our episode on sleep. We didn't go far into it, so let me take a second here. Revenge bedtime procrastination is identified as a tendency to feel like we've earned some time to ourselves at the end of a long, hard day. Work is finally done. Dinner has been made. The kitchen is clean. The kids are in bed. I finally have some time to do something for me. So we put on a show that turns into two, three, four episodes, Or we open a social media platform and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and suddenly three hours have gone by and I should have been in bed two hours ago. And well, since I'm already up so late, I might as well just keep scrolling. We've all been there, right? It's like we're trying to get back at the day by having this time for us. But the only one it punishes is us. We put off sleep and put off sleep, yet the best thing we could likely do for our tomorrow selves is go the F to sleep. Side note, there's a book for parents that's written as a children's book called Go the Fuck to Sleep, and it's the greatest thing ever. I'll post it in the show notes if you're needing a fantastic Christmas gift to give to some sleep-deprived parent in your life. The other major way that screens impact our brains is by messing with our self-esteem. Social media in particular has been shown to have consequences for negative self-image, but this has also been shown in other media exposure. While social media is a great way to connect with people who are far away or support connections with those we're close to, it can also expose us to ideas of who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to look like, and what it means to appear happy or successful or some other metric of winning life. Engaging with this kind of comparative input for hours on a daily basis can't help but have an impact on how our brain makes sense of us, others, and the world around us. Let me give an example. I am never more dissatisfied with my home than when I watch a lot of HGTV. When I'm exposed to everyone else renovating, cleaning, organizing, and making their homes beautiful, I look around and kind of just want to burn mine to the ground. Okay, that might be a bit extreme, but really only a bit. Seeing their happy faces, their excitement and joy, it makes me want that. It makes me feel crummy about my home, even though my home is pretty lovely. And it makes me feel like I need to chase after something that I didn't even really care about until I was exposed to what those people seem to have. The same is true for other types of comparative exposures. It makes us feel bad about ourselves, our lives, and makes us feel a need to chase after some version of completion we unconsciously believe lives out there somewhere. It can make us lose out on the joy right there in front of us because we're too busy looking for the bad and looking ahead to the version of better we have planted in our minds as the ultimate goal we now need to achieve to experience joy. Okay, so we have some clarity now on the ways in which our relationship with tech impacts our brains, our bodies, and our lives. So now what? 
Now I tell you to go grab all of your devices, put them in a pile and light them on fire. No, just kidding. Don't do that. Look, I know we're hitting on the doomsday stuff connected with digital life, but it's not all bad. And it is important that we highlight the ways that tech actually serves us. It can simplify a lot of our lives. It can free up time, allowing us to use the time in ways that are better for us. And it can bridge connection to people we care about who are distant. It's not all bad. The trick is finding this elusive thing called balance and finding the skills to self-regulate our exposure to keep ourselves within that balanced window. So what does balance look like? Well, unfortunately, the answer is that it's going to be a little bit different for everyone. There isn't a hard and fast rule that will be effective or even possible for every single person. A solid guideline is to try to limit your combined screen exposure to around the six hour mark per day. This is the line where research has indicated more likelihood toward mood disorders. That said, I would suggest that it has less to do with the number and more to do with the quality and emotional experience of the interactions with our devices. I'm gonna say that again, I would suggest that it has less to do with the number and more to do with the quality and emotional experience of the interactions with our devices. For example, if I am spending five hours in front of a screen for work and then an hour mindlessly scrolling social media or viewing catastrophic news, that will likely lead to a certain emotional experience at the end of the day. Whereas if I spend five hours on my computer for work and then spend a couple of hours video chatting with a close friend or family member, and then gaming online with some friends while we laugh and connect, and then watch a funny YouTube video that cracks me up, this will likely lead to a different type of emotional experience at the end of the day. So take home number one is to focus on the quality of your interactions with tech. Take time to notice how you feel as you interact with your devices and the various tasks, platforms, and tools you engage with. Do you feel calm and connected or tense and jittery or low and lonely? Take pause and observe yourself, your body, and your emotions and consider which aspects of tech are serving you well and which ones aren't. Then work from there to set some limits around exposure to the pieces that feel like they take away from you while anchoring to the ones that feel life-giving. Take home number two that I hope you'll walk away with is that tech is not life. While it is unavoidable in this day and age, as with anything, it is best in moderation. And we need to create boundaries and spaces to be in our real life without distraction. Carving out screen-free time in your daily life and being an active participant in finding or seeking out activities that feel engaging and connective without devices is vital. And if we're not careful, it's going to become a lost art. In some homes, there are set times, like dinner time, where devices are put away, or areas of the home like bedrooms or the kitchen table where devices are not welcome to be. Naming screen-free times or spaces identifies our valuing of being in our actual skin, making eye contact with those who surround us, or even just valuing being with ourselves undistracted to value what other needs we might have. Beyond the time and space, 
Setting our devices down also gives us the opportunity to pick up a hobby, notice what's around us, and engage on a level we can't achieve digitally. Whether it's taking up knitting, all the cool millennial kids are doing it, learning some new recipes, creating a family board game night tradition, trying a new sport, or goofing off with home repairs, there is a ton to do that isn't living vicariously through other people's lives on TikTok or numbing out while playing Candy Crush. Is that still a thing? Okay, takeaway number three is to focus on building a life you feel good about so that comparisons don't feel so tempting or overwhelming. Scrolling social media can lead us to a never-ending trap that often only ends in us feeling badly, but it doesn't tend to lead us toward taking action to remedy anything that we're feeling badly about. We just get stuck and feel helpless and miserable. Taking a step back from the temptation to scroll and instead invest our time and energy into building the life we long for is the only way out of the trap. Claiming our lives as our own, declaring them and pouring ourselves into them is the only way to really feel good about where we're at. So often the digital trap is to backburner our own actual lives. We miss the moments our kids invite us to play while watching some other mom nail imaginary playtime with their perfectly coiffed child in their perfectly adorable playroom that looks neat and tidy with white carpets to boot. We miss the moments of working on our own projects and feeling our own sense of accomplishment and completion while watching endless videos of someone else redoing their home or working on a project we can only imagine hoping for someday. We do this to the detriment of our sleep, our bodies, our self-esteem, and then connected to all of these to the detriment of our mental health. Because as our sleep sinks to keep scrolling or playing or watching, our bodies feel the effect of that. Our bodies are also feeling the effect of the lack of movement, as well as other physiological issues like worsening vision, tendinitis and other hand-wrist concerns, neck and back pain from poor posture, and so much more. Then tack on the comparison pieces that mess with our self-esteem, and the combination is a perfect storm for depression, anxiety, and other mental health concerns. Mix that in with being in work that already puts you at higher risk for mood disorders, PTSD, and related mental illnesses, as well as a higher risk for stress-related physiological concerns like heart disease, diabetes, and so on, can you see how this all adds up? I get that self-regulating our choices is hard. Trust me, I get it. But if we don't do it, no one else will do it for us. And we'll find ourselves looking back and regretting that we didn't protect ourselves better when we had a chance. An author I really value, James Clear, the author of the book Atomic Habits, talks about our present day choices as casting a vote for the person we want to be. I love this. It's uncomfortable, but it challenges me to consider how the behavior I'm choosing right now is either contributing positively or negatively toward the version of myself I hope to be a year from now or 10 years from now. When I think about who I want to be, I want to be vivacious and full of energy to keep up with my kids as they age and my grandkids someday. I want to be attuned and aware of what's up for them. I don't want to miss things because I wasn't paying attention. I want to be present and remember the moments 
to be able to look back and reflect on the best times of my life without it feeling like a blur. And the choices I make today dictate whether I will get to have those things. The choice to play a game with my kids is far more likely to lead to special memories and moments than me ignoring them while I do one more thing on my phone. Spending time going for a walk will lead me to my goal far better than sitting to watch another episode of whatever show I won't remember in a day, let alone years from now. Anchoring to what matters is how we go about making change that feels meaningful for the long haul. As we move toward wrapping up for today, I'm curious what your takeaway will be. What kind of votes will you be casting for your future self? And are the votes you're casting in alignment with the future self you hope to be? I want to encourage you to connect and let me know where you're at and what you're going to take from today's episode. Reach out hilariously on social media. You can tag me or comment on the episode post we put up or shoot me an email. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. Also, please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. Thanks so much for spending some of your tech time with me. If you cut anything from your tech time, don't let it be this. I value so much that you take time to join me. And I also feel grateful for those who share this and spread wellness with others struggling to survive on the front lines. Thank you for all you do. Until next time, friends, stay safe.